Good morning. Good morning, family. It's good to be seen by you today. And I must say that it's um, a blessing at any given time to share God's word. Um, but especially with a text such as this, um, one that is of immense encouragement to us, especially when in troubling and trying times. Um, my grand used to have a saying, uh, among the many sayings, and for those of you who have been around me, you know I, I repeat my grand sayings often because they um, have a way of kind of finding their way and embedding themselves in, in your mind and memory. And she used to have this saying, it may be long, but it won't be forever. And um, as I looked at the text, that was the first thing that came to mind. It may be long, but it won't be forever. And I can imagine that those forces who had to fight in the wars that have gone before us, um, this being Remembrance Sunday, um, which has to an extent been acknowledged, um, uh, may have had that sense of it being a very long and drawn-out experience, and yet being encouraged by the fact that there was a declaration of victory. There was a point at which the end was declared, the victory was established, and at least for those who were on the winning side, it was a relief and a great joy, one that they may not have even celebrated outrageously and expressively because they were so tired and so weary, and yet one that they appreciated deeply and were extremely grateful for. And as I think about that this morning and think about all of the, the troops who have fought and those who were even killed um, in the occasion of us being able to experience and enjoy the liberty and democracy that we have at this time. It's a sobering thought. And I'd like to just take a moment to mark their memory and their sacrifice with just a moment of silence as we start. So I invite you to join with me, just for a, a, a moment of silence in your household, as we remember those who gave, them loves, gave their lives for something that they believed to be worth more than life itself. Let's take a moment.
Lord, we thank you for those who have given their lives for what they believe to be true, for what they believe to be right and honorable. That they would even give their lives following the orders of those who were superior to them without negotiation or question. We thank you for the sacrifice that they've made and for the example that they've set in doing so. And Lord, we do pray that you would help us to appreciate that as those who are made by you and for those of us who have been saved by you, there is an even greater call because we follow one who did not just give himself for the truth, but he is the truth. Who did not just die to accomplish right, but he is right. And he has called all who follow him to deny themselves, to take up their cross, to reckon ourselves dead, crucified with him, that he might live through us. And so he calls us to follow in the way of death, in the way of sacrifice, but it is a way that he has led, that he has opened before us. We thank you, Father. We thank you for the fact that actually we are called to walk on a path that may be hazardous and yet it is certainly victorious. Certainly. Because our Savior did not remain in the tomb. He is alive. And his sacrifice was unquestionable. And his sacrifice was fully pleasing to you, Lord God. And you raised him from the dead in the glorious resurrection, displaying him to be well-pleasing to you and fully approved in all that he said and all that he'd done. And so we stand in awe of you above all things. And we thank you for the victory that has been bestowed on us, that has been granted to us through Christ Jesus. May it affect and impact our lives, Lord, now and for always. Amen. We're looking today at 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 58. And... Um, we're concluding Paul's sentiments, at least for now, as it relates to the matter of the resurrection. And so let me read these verses for us today. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 onwards. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, 
Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. There is a sense in which we're encouraged to take heed to the popular saying, go hard until you go home. I modified it slightly because normally people say go hard or go home. And it's not up to us to determine when we're going to go home to be with the Lord. But nonetheless, we know that we go hard until we go home because going home is certain. Pastor B last week um, began to kind of unpack the previous verses in, in answering the question, what will we be like in the resurrection? And Paul kind of underlines this here in verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the, the imperishable. I tell you a mystery. And so he's beginning to unpack a mystery here, but the reality is it's a mystery that will not be fully revealed until that time. Even the Apostle Paul himself can't tell us exactly what we will be like, but he tells us that we shall be changed. In fact, not all who believe in the Lord will sleep the sleep of death. But we shall all be changed. All who are the Lord's look forward to the ultimate makeover. You know, it, it always amazes me when you watch those kind of 60-minute makeover programs or those kind of shows where they go in and they bring about a transformation in the property and they achieve so much in so little time, it seems. And, you know, they kind of do the whoosh transformation scene, the before and after, and you see the scene before, and then it's whoosh, and it's the glimmering new um, structure, refurb that they're presenting to you. And I can't lie, there's been many times, especially on the 60-minute makeover shows, when I've sat down and I've wondered, but I wonder what they're not showing us. I wonder what parts are they covering over with that painting, or what is it that they didn't quite get finish that they're going to have to do after the show because actually they can only do so much and even at their best it's a refurb but what we're being promised is a total transformation like a caterpillar going into a cocoon and coming out a butterfly and you would look at those two insects and feel like there's there's very little, barely any comparison between them. And yet, the metamorphosis that takes place causes that caterpillar seemingly to become a whole new 
being, a whole new creature. And this is the anticipation we have. I remember in the early days of being a Christian, we'd have those conversations. I wonder what it'd be like when we, when we get to heaven. Uh, will we be, you know, that, that perfect height that we desire? We want to be six foot three. Or will, will we be ripped? And, you know, will we, will we be um, just that, that, will we be able to even recognize one another? It's a mystery. But what we do know is that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. Now, where have we heard that before? There's, an, there's a sense here in which the Apostle Paul is, is expounding on what Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, Nicodemus in John 3. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. And so what we do know is that even though we will have a body, Jesus, as the, the first fruit of many brethren, the first to be resurrected, us to follow in that order, we learn that he sat down and he ate with the disciples. And they were able to touch him. He had a body. And yet, nonetheless, the body was not the same as the one that went into the grave. Some have debated that there may have been similarities. He clearly still bore the marks, certain marks and scars. When he saw Thomas, he said, come, put your finger in my hands. And so, was that an exception for the Lord in order that the marks of, of our purchase, the, the marks of his sacrifice would forever remain with us? Will we carry scars into heaven that are then perfected? Is that the order that... Huh? It's a mystery. Let's not go beyond the text. Let's just stick to what we're told and delight in imagining. But what we do know is that flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom and that this perishable will put on imperishable. This body that is vulnerable to COVID and cancer. This body that's vulnerable to getting smashed in car crashes and lost at sea. This body that's vulnerable to aches from arthritis. Loss of vision, impaired hearing this body will be changed to an imperishable... I mean, think about that. I mean, we watch these shows, right? Uh, I recently binge-watched a show, and it, it was... The whole concept of the show was these humanoids, these individuals who were robots, but they were um, a, a, a biotechnology. They looked like humans. And there was a sense in which being robotic, they were better able at functioning in life than humans. And yet, they were man-made, they were finite, they still had their weaknesses. But there's almost this sense, you see all of these superheroes um, shows and, you know, 
building on the myths of the, the demigods of the Greek mythology and so on. There's this longing in us for a perfected form of ourselves. It's almost as if we're being mentally prepared for that. And yet, actually, God has sown that seed in our hearts. That longing for the, the imperishable, the incorruptible, the body that can't be hurt or harmed, that, that cannot be corrupted in any way. And it's promised to us. And yet, exactly what it's like, we don't know. It's still a mystery. And yet we have that to look forward to. And I ask you, if you knew that you could be in any situation and no harm could come to you, how would you live your life differently? It's hard to even imagine that. When you see that person being robbed, would you be in a situation where you wouldn't think twice and just intervene? Because you know it doesn't matter what that robber pulls out on you, it's not going to do anything to you. Saw someone about to be knocked over. There is meant to be a way in which the reality of our expected change changes our current experience and changes our current expectation. And yet Paul takes that to another level. He says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. And this is speaking about that ultimate moment. In fact, the Apostle Paul elaborates on this in 1 Thessalonians 4 when he says that the dead in Christ shall rise first then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet him in the air. And so there's this clear sense that at the coming of the Lord, when the trumpet sounds, all those who are his will be caught up. And in, in the, that sense of twinkling isn't just like a, the speed of a blink. It's even quicker than Before you blink, you're changed, transformed. And so in this, there's supposed to be a great expectation in our hearts. Now, when I was come up, coming up in the faith, these, these texts were um, spoken of and related to an experience known, or um, commonly known as the rapture or the translation of the saints. And based on your view of the end times, um, for those who, who held the view of, of a, well, you didn't even have to be pre-tribulation, I guess, but pre-tribulation, pre-millennial pre return of Christ. And I'm not going to unpack that, so you can look that up if you're unfamiliar with those terms. But basically, it was suggested that you would be caught up with Jesus whilst life is going on. 
And those who are Christians, those who are his, will be taken, vanishing in an instant, clothes left in the pile. Caught up to be with the Lord. This is a view that was very much popularized by the Left Behind um, series of books. Some of you will be familiar with if you've been around for any length of time. And they've done a couple of films. I don't really think the films were like that really well done, but mad cheesy. But the, the books were very gripping. I had the whole series, and there must have been about 12 of them. And they weren't cheap. <laughs> yeah? Very engaging. And although I couldn't say that I hold to that view wholeheartedly as a, as a conscientious learner of Scripture, actually... I don't have to allow my theology to be shaped, and I ought not to allow my theology to be shaped by works of fiction, works of art. These may have their influence. There's, there's been a, a few songs that I've listened to that have really given me food for thought. Uh, a song, well, actually, both of them are called The Millennium. One's by Shailen, and the other one's by Hazakim. And given me real food for thought, real nourishing sustenance. But at the same time, whatever it is that I'm engaging with, I have to take it back to the Word of God and examine the Scriptures to see that it's so. And thankfully, our view of how this all unfolds and at what point we are changed and what happens on, on earth at that time is not essential to our salvation. And so it's not something that we ought to divide over. It's not something that we ought to separate over. It's not something that we should um, ostracize people because they don't see it like us. It's not a first order issue. It's not an important issue to the extent of it affects our salvation. Now there's no doubt that the hope that we hold of the future does affect how we live. In the scripture it says, having this hope within us, we purify ourselves. And so there's a sense in which it helps us to be focused on the finish line. It helps us to have a determined purpose, knowing that we are arriving at a goal in due season. That there is an end to look forward to. And as much as people have shied away from talking about the end times or eschatology, which is the technical term, I think that it can actually be quite a, a, a loss to our experience as Christians. Okay, we'll have different views. Okay, it's hard to understand. It's hard to come to a place of agreement. But we're supposed to be able to have these conversations in a way where actually we can reason together without it becoming a dispute without it becoming an argument, without it causing beef. We're supposed to be able to share our views and sip a super malt and smile and laugh and question and yet be edified, iron sharpening iron, and be happy even if we don't all come to the same conclusion at the end of it. But there's clearly a sense here that the Apostle Paul is holding this out as a hope that we are to expect, look forward to, 
and, and press toward. And we'll see that more in a moment. And so there will be a point. And again, you know, the eschatological view is not defined by this scripture in the sense that this scripture can only represent one view. This scripture says what it says. It's God's word. Now, how we interpret and understand that can actually, we can see it from different angles. This is equally true of the person who says, you know what, I don't think that there's any tribulation period. I believe this is just speaking about when Jesus comes, there's one coming, we'll all be caught up to be with the Lord, and then that's the end of it. There's no seven years or three and a half years of tribulation, and then we come back again with Jesus, which others would, would say, actually, that's a, that's a reasonable critique of the pre-trib rapture theory. Okay. But it doesn't change the truth of the text. And that's what's important. This is true, whatever view you hold. And if your view doesn't see this as true, then your view ain't true. Because this is the word of God. And it says what it says. And so there will be that moment. Imagine going through the rigors of life. You blink and you, next thing you know, you're in the presence of the Lord. And you, you're just there. And you hear the echo of the trumpet in your ears. I mean, it's all happened so fast. Is there a sense of it being simultaneous, instantaneous? I mean, do you move at the speed of light, which is quicker than the speed of sound? Do you change before you hear? Or do you hear before you change? It's all a mystery. But it's a glorious one to imagine. And imagine I, I invite us. You're there in a moment. And in the next instant, you're just in the presence, the glorious presence of the Lord. And, and you're in his radiance. And I'm sure, in my opinion, <laughs> let me just underline that. Our first thought won't be, wow, look at my new body. Oh my, this is crazy. Abs. I'm, you know how much I wanted these abs? That's not going to be our first thought. Our first thought is going to be to throw ourselves on the floor and cry, holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, a wondrous are you. We will be so captivated by his glory, that any kind of glory our new body contains will pale in comparison. It will be merely an afterthought, if that. And yet God in his wondrous kindness has purposed that we would have the joy of looking forward to and the confidence of knowing now that even if we don't experience the fullness of his healing in this life, we will. We will. And this is why I don't hesitate to pray for healing. Because I know that it's going to happen sooner or later. 
And we pray that it would be sooner. And we pray that God would intervene in our earthly experience in the now divinely, in his miraculous power by the presence of his spirit. And that he would bring about change, physical change. That he would accelerate, strengthen, empower the healing processes of the body in ways that would cause people to receive strength and health and life that would not have been expected. Without feeling the need to manipulate that, to manufacture that, to fabricate that. Because I know that actually there will be a time if this person has received healing of the soul, renewal of the spirit, if you put your faith in Christ, you can look forward to a certain healing. And even if it's not now, it will be later and it will be permanent. Later will be greater. Be encouraged if you're struggling with illness, feeling like God doesn't love you because he hasn't healed you. Be encouraged. Your healing will come. Continue to trust. Jesus is alive. <clears throat> and this is what Paul goes on to underline. Verse 55, 54-55, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Even death itself dies. Paul is declaring here the death of death. The powerlessness of death. The toothlessness of death. The victory of Jesus Christ swallows up even death itself. Death, like, you were gnashing your teeth like you were something. Where are you now in the face of our glorification? Where are you now? You were ravaging nations, ravaging humans. And yet, where are you now? That's what we'll be saying. Where is your victory? What can you do to us? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. Now, it's interesting because um, I'm, I wouldn't say that I'm afraid of bees, but obviously I'm cautious of them. But I know that there are some people who are deadly scared of bees. And deadly scared of bees. And it's because they have a condition that can cause them to die from a bee sting. But it's actually not the bee itself that is the problem. It's the sting or the barb. That's what the issue is. And for us, we understand here that the sting or the barb of death is sin. It's, it's sin that causes people to die. It is sin that gives death its sting. 
and it's sin that causes people to be lost forever in eternity. And so, you know, we, we may wonder, why is it that people die? Why is it that we have to have funerals? Why is it that we have to mourn loved ones? It's because actually the first humans disobeyed God. They obeyed themselves. And in doing so, catering to their own desires, they defied the word of God. They violated his will and purpose. And sin was entered into the cosmos. It's not even just that it entered into the human experience, because it did, and it caused those individuals and all who have been born from them, ourselves included, every single one of us, to be corrupt of heart. And as a result, prone to death. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are told that in, in dying you shall die. That's when death, man was created to live forever. With the capacity to live forever. And yet that capacity was curtailed through the entrance of sin. And it's because we all have sin that we all fear death. But what makes death particularly sore, particularly stinging, is when we appreciate, especially as believers, that someone has died, they have gone to their grave apart from Christ. You see, the fact of the matter is, death is such that It signifies the entrance into the final chapter. If this is the first stage, if this is the, 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 the introduction, if this is the preparation for our existence, death signifies the entrance into the final stage, the eternal, the eternal facet. And the reality is that our life is an ongoing one. As somebody once said, we all live forever, it just depends on where we go. But if a person dies in their sin, there is no longer any hope for them. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. Romans 3 says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And in this, this is true even before the law was introduced with Moses. You think about Adam, you think about Cain and Abel, you think about Noah, you think about Abraham, and the generations before Moses. The law was explicitly given unto Moses, but the reality of sin existed. And yet the power of sin is the law, because why? The law codifies. The law exposes explicitly in such a way that we're not merely left to interpret the voice of our conscience, which every individual has been created with. That, that word conscience is a, 
from the original language, a compound of two words, con, which is with, and science, which is knowledge. And there's this sense of us acting against what we know to be right. We're acting with knowledge. In fact, Jesus speaks of the, the work of the Holy Spirit in the book of John as being the one who convicts the world of sin, what's wrong, righteousness, what's right, and judgment, the day of reckoning, when we will be judged for the two. And so, the coming of the law has explicitly exposed to humanity what God, God views as right and wrong. And the goal isn't, therefore, that we now try and keep the law as best as we can, because we can't. We're unable. Nobody is able to keep the law. And this is why Romans 3 says, there is none good, no, not one. Even the person who grew up in church, they went to church every week of their life, they've, in their eyes, they've never done anything wrong. And looking down on that immoral, illiterate criminal who's just selling drugs and, and yet going to church doesn't make anyone righteous. And although in themselves they may feel very self-assured and feel as though, ah, oh, I'm not like that drug dealer. I'm not like that prostitute. Uh, I'm not like that neglectful mother. Actually, that doesn't make you right in the sight of God. The tenth commandment is you shall not covet. And it's interesting because it's one commandment that has no obvious outward expression. It's something that goes on within the heart. To covet is to, to desire something that is not yours. To be greedy for things. It's related to jealousy and envy. And who can say that they've never done that? You might say, oh, I've never stolen, uh, I've never murdered. You might say, I've never lied, although I'm sure that's a lie in itself. But in the book of James, we're told if you break one commandment, you're guilty of breaking them all. You can have the hugest anchor chain on a ship. Could be the biggest chain in the world. How many links have to be broken in order for that ship to, to, to go adrift? Just one. That's why the saying is true. The chain is determined by the strength of the weakest link. Goodbye. You are the weakest link. <laughs> Flashback to some of us here. But we are the weakest link. And I don't mean that in evolutionary terms either. Because we've all committed sins of the heart. Even that attitude that that self-assured person would hold is known as self-righteousness. Pride. Which in and of itself is a sin. Because none of us can stand justified before a holy God. And forgiveness only comes through repentant faith in Jesus Christ. 
as Lord and Savior, as the one who paid the penalty, offering the satisfactory sacrifice as a substitute for those who would believe. He is the only one who has ever kept the whole law of God, implicit and explicit. Not only did he not do wrong, but he always done right. So often we judge ourselves, well, I haven't done this and I haven't done that. Yeah, I didn't do this wrong and I didn't do that wrong. But what about all the opportunities we had to do the right thing that we didn't do? Again, in the book of James, he who knows to do a thing and does not do it, that is sin. Sins of omission, not just sins of commission. And so hearing this, we get uncomfortable because we realize that actually I really am a guilty sinner. And we ought to feel uncomfortable because our only hope is in Jesus Christ, the flawless one. And how do we know that he's flawless? We know that because he was raised from the dead on the third day. That's what this whole chapter has been about. This is why it's such a glorious truth. This is why it's such an expression of victory for us as believers. Because actually we sit down and we lament and we mourn at us, our state, the state of our own hearts our own covetousness and jealousy and envy and bitterness and bad mind. If we're honest with ourselves, and yet there is victory even over our own sin and our own weakness, even over our own failure to do what is right and keep the law, there's victory. Jesus Christ leads us in triumph. Jesus Christ is the one who gives us. You see, this is the wonder of the, the Christian gospel. That eternal life is given as a gift. It's a ex generous expression of grace. It's a, it's a beautiful extension of love to the undeserving. in ways that we can't even understand or appreciate. And yet, thanks be to God. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Even the thief dying on the cross beside Jesus was able to call out, Lord. He declared him as Lord. He recognized who, even though they were both there on the cross, both breathing their last breaths, in that moment, he saw the majesty of Christ, even as he hung there on the cross, and he called out to him and said, Lord, remember me when you enter your kingdom. He rightly recognized Jesus for who he was, as well as himself for who he was. And he knew that he couldn't just expect to breathe his last breath and just dance into the kingdom because he was nailed to the cross beside the master, beside the savior. He needed to call out on the Lord to be saved. And maybe to burst some bubbles, that doesn't necessarily have to take the form of a sinner's prayer. Jesus wasn't like, repeat after me. Lord Jesus, dear Lord Jesus, I recognize I'm a sinner. I'm a recognize I'm a 
It's not formulaic. It's a genuine expression of the heart unto God. And yet, even in that instant, as he was there hanging on the cross, the Lord was able to say to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Wow. And, you know, people use the term thief on the cross, but petty thieves didn't get nailed to a cross in Roman times. That was a, a in fact, it's really it's quite a poor translation. These were terrorists. These were enemies of the state. These were insurrectionists. These were individuals who were classed as such a threat, not just to society, but to the Roman authority, that actually they needed to be killed. And so this guy had lived a life. He had a track record. He had a history. And he never went to church, as far as we know, quote unquote. We don't know that he was one who frequented the synagogue. And yet, even if he had, in that moment, he realized that that wasn't enough to assure him. And so what is your assurance today? What is it that you're relying on to make you acceptable to God? Only Jesus Christ can offer you that victory and the hope of renewal. And so therefore, I challenge you, right where you are, as you're watching this, I challenge you, forget everything else and put your faith in Jesus. Put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is alive. He is risen from the dead. There is no one else in history who has that claim. Jesus said to his disciples, if you don't believe me for what I say, believe me for what I do. Actions speak louder than words. And when Jesus walked out of the tomb, these discouraged, disheveled disciples who were getting ready to go back to their, their regular work, their regular employment, were so overwhelmed. They were so bowled over at seeing the one who they had witnessed crucified, having first been tortured, it completely transformed them and changed the trajectory of their lives to the extent that 11 out of the 12 were killed for their profession of faith in Jesus Christ. They were willing to stand on their testimony. I have seen the risen Lord and he is Lord he alone is Lord and Lord of all. This is why the Apostle Paul opens the chapter and he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, verse 4, that he was raised on the third day, accordance with the scriptures. This happened. And he appeared to Cephas, a.k.a. Peter. And then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. If you want to know, go and check them and ask them yourself. He appeared to James. 
to the apostles, and he appeared to Paul. This is the cornerstone of the calling of the apostles, that they were those who had witnessed the resurrected Christ. This isn't a myth or a legend. This is an actual factual statement of history. Jesus is alive, and he has promised a resurrection to those who follow him. And so in verse 58, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, firm it, go hard, be immovable. Don't allow your convictions to be swayed, your focus to be taken off Christ. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. See, we're not called to be clock watchers as Christians. You know those times when you was at school, right? And after lunch and you hit that double period and you're just like, oh Lord, this seems so long. And you're just watching the minutes just drag. As you're waiting for the pips to go so you can get out. Just waiting for home time. You're at work and it's been a long week. And you're sitting there just shuffling papers, pretending to be busy, waiting for five o'clock so you could just get out. The Lord's like, nah, listen, this is certain. The Lord's gone before you. There's a purpose to be fulfilled. There's a work to be done. Go hard till you go home. It's going to happen in an instant. We don't know when. But be about the Father's business because what you're doing is important. It's not in vain. In whatever capacity you are expressing the life of God through your life, it might be through just sending a text message and being encouragement. It might be serving on the Sunday online service team and getting the stream out. It might be barley loaves and you're there and you're grinding on a Tuesday, helping these people that seem like they're ungrateful, entitled, Wanting more of this and more of that. You might be in your workplace resisting temptation and being a witness to your colleagues. You might be in your classroom or your, your Zoom class and you're there trying to avoid all of the ungodly banter. Your labor's not in vain. And so let's challenge ourselves. How can we truly make a difference? How can we live for the Lord in such a way that it reflects the fact that we know that we have a certain hope, a certain expectation of greatness before us? So may the Lord help us to be found in him, in faith, and about his business when he returns. Because whether we leave this earth or he comes before we leave, we have a certainty that we will be with him. Death is swallowed up in victory. And we give thanks to God. Amen? Lord, we ask that you would infuse our hearts with the reality of this.
that we wouldn't merely be clock watchers, that we would be aware of the seasons and the times in which we live, that we would be aware of the, the signs of your coming, and yet, Lord, we wouldn't be complacent, that we wouldn't just be kicking our heels and twiddling our thumbs and shuffling papers waiting for you to return, but that actually we would keep things in perspective and realize that our careers and all of our desires and aspirations, whether it's investments or you know, whether it's being able to have multiple children and a, a huge family, and all of these things are circumstantial to the very reason of our being. And that is that we might be fit, firmly fixed and focused on you and about your business, investing our lives into your kingdom. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd forgive us Forgive us, Lord, where we've put ourselves first, which is the essence of sin, where we've slighted you, where we've blatantly disobeyed you. Forgive us, Lord, where we've trusted in ourselves. Forgive us, Lord, where we've pursued and esteemed other things more highly than the prize of being in Christ. Forgive us, Lord, I ask. Strengthen us by your Spirit. And Lord, may you be greatly glorified. And in your name and for your glory alone do we ask this. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.